trust in our hearts and souls this morning find satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, we'll read through verse 10. Let me reiterate while you're searching for that, that uh, if you're visiting, please stay after the service. We have a visitor's luncheon, as Morgan mentioned, uh, at 1230 in the Fellowship Hall, so we would love to have the opportunity to meet you and give you the chance to ask any questions. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, begin reading with verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus. We thank you that he did indeed come to save and to seek that which is lost. And so as we turn to the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word, we pray that you would come and that you would honor your word, that it would be productive and fruitful in our hearts, that you would be with me as I communicate it, that it would be communicated in a way that people can hear and understand. Come, we pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning, Irrational Grace. Imagine for a moment, maybe this is not too difficult to imagine for some of you, for me it's very difficult. But imagine that you are a very wealthy person, that you have everything that money could possibly buy. You have a house staff that takes care of the things inside your house, that does all the cleaning and the cooking and the shopping and the whatnot. You have someone that takes care of your yard work so you don't have to labor and work in the yard. Anything you do, you get to do purely out of luxury because you want to and not because you have to. However, your neighbors don't care for you very much. In fact, when you walk by, they turn the other way. They don't like to see you coming. You have a bad reputation because people know that what you do is not necessarily the most honorable type of job. Now, imagine also that you hear of this man, this Galilean carpenter of all people, who is wandering from town to town. He's been doing so now for the past three, three and a half years. And everywhere he goes, people meet him, and their life has changed. Those who are sick are healed, and those who are blind they see. Even the dead have purportedly been raised again. Everyone that you know have great things to say about this man, well, except one. You have a a rich young friend who 
you highly respect because he's very good about keeping the commandments of God, but he went to see this, this carpenter and he walked away very sad because the carpenter told him that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so if that's you and you hear this man is coming, what do you do? You know the poor and the needy flock to him. Will you be accepted as well? Well, Zacchaeus, and I imagine most of us know the story of Zacchaeus. We've probably heard this story. If you've been in church, if you grew up in church, you're, you're familiar with it. You've heard it your entire life. You know that he was a chief tax collector, and tax collectors are, were not very well-liked people, either today or back then. But to make matters worse, he was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. This meant that not only did he collect people's taxes, but also there were people under him who collected taxes. And the way that you made money as a tax collector is that you charge what the Roman Empire required you to charge, but then you added a little bit on top. And if you had people working under you, they had to add a little bit more so that they could pocket some and give you a percentage of whatever they brought in. So at the end of the day, people really don't like the chief tax collector because he's getting a percentage of everything and he represents, uh, he represents Rome, the tyrant that has invaded your country. So this is Zacchaeus. He was very wealthy, and we have every reason to believe that the reason he was wealthy is because he was uh, defrauding people of their wealth. In fact, that, according to historians, is the only way you could get wealthy as a, as a tax collector. It was not a well-paying job from, from the Roman Empire. But that was not so much an inability to him as something else that he really couldn't help. Because he heard that Christ was coming to Jericho, and Christ really wasn't coming to Jericho. And I think this is significant, so I'll point it out. That according to our text in verse 1, Christ entered Jericho and was passing through. Jericho was not his destination. He was simply passing through. His destination, by the way, was Jerusalem. That's where he was heading. In fact, if you read chapter 18, you know that he was heading to Jerusalem for one purpose. Not because he had you know, a date with the Roman emperor or a, a, a meeting scheduled with the governor per se, but he had a destiny with Calvary. He had told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man would be betrayed, crucified, and then the third day he would rise again. But he's passing through Jericho and Zacchaeus hears it and verse 3 is very telling for us. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And this brings me to the first point that I want to make from this text, which is the inability of man. Zacchaeus had his own inabilities. Physically speaking, regardless of how much money he was able to accumulate, he could not do one thing about his size. He was small. Now, today, maybe, if you have a lot of money, there's stuff you can do about your appearance, but you can't add one height to your stature, maybe unless you put shoes that are elevated, high heels, perhaps boots on. But at the end of the day, when you take them off, you're still the same size as you were to begin with. And in biblical times, it was no different. He could do nothing about his size. It was one of his inabilities. It prevented him on a human level from being able to get to Jesus. He heard that Jesus was coming, but he was small of stature, or as the Sunday school song says, he was a wee little man. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, there's no indication in the text that he actually wanted to meet Christ. I think he would have thought that was wishful thinking. But it seems to have been enough 
to simply see him. And so he climbs a sycamore tree, and it's there that he hopes to get a glimpse of the Savior. Now, scholars tell us that the sycamore tree was used by the people of the day to, to uh, beautify as landscape, to beautify the main thoroughfare that went through the very heart of town. In fact, the entire street in the middle of town was lined on either side, according to historians, with sycamore trees. So uh, Zacchaeus first runs ahead. He runs in front of the crowd. He gets into to a place where he knows that Christ will soon be passing by, and he climbs up in a tree, hoping to get a glimpse, hoping to see who Jesus is. He has this desire, this burning desire, to see this man who has changed the lives of so many. Another characteristic of the sycamore tree, not only was it used for beautification there in the center of town, but it was also purportedly uh, one of the largest trees, and it had large leaves. So not only could Zacchaeus climb up and peer out and see out over the entire town square and through the crowds and hopefully to Jesus, which was his intent, but also if he wanted to, he could watch and, and see Jesus without being seen himself. Perhaps that was his motive. But we know that he climbs to the sycamore tree hoping to see who Jesus is. He has inabilities. He has inhibitions. He has limitations. He is searching for the Savior. He's searching, no doubt, for answers in life. He's searching for something that money, all of his money, all of his wealth, all of his success as a chief tax collector cannot buy. He's searching for the Savior. But he has these inabilities, these limitations. On a pastoral application level, I would suggest that fundamentally all of us have a major inability, both Zacchaeus as well as everyone in here. Because we call it, by the way, in, in, in our circles, reform circles, total depravity. But really it means that we're born sinners. That not only are we born simply with the ability to do that which is wrong and displeasing in the sight of God, but we're also born dead in sin. So the only way that we can actually desire God is if God, through his grace, enables us to desire him, gives to us the desire to seek him. That's our chief inability. So fundamentally, we're all on the same level in that regards. However, I would suggest that even as believers, we have inhibitions. There are roadblocks, because we're not talking now so much about justification. Yes, God gives grace for justification so that we are accepted by God, embraced by him. Our sins are forgiven. We take on the righteousness of Christ. But also there are inhibitions and inabilities when it comes to our own personal sanctification, our discipleship as we seek to grow in Christ and become better acquainted with our Savior. There are things that beset us. There are things in our life that simply would deter us if we would allow them. Spiritual, physical, emotional, and intellectual inabilities. When I was pastoring a church in Arkansas, I had the joy of knowing a man who, and, and actually spending a, a great deal of time with him, who was in his early 90s and who had attended church his entire life, but never accepted Christ as his savior, never made a profession of faith. And I would often visit him on Wednesdays and, and he and I had great conversations and I asked him once what his hindrance was, why he did not believe, why he did not confess faith in Christ. His roadblock, his inability was intellectual. 
He shared with me, and really it was an intellectual symptom of a spiritual problem, but he shared with me how that it was difficult for him truly to understand and rationalize the virgin birth of Christ. So he was inhibited from pursuing Christ, from getting to know who Christ is by this intellectual roadblock. He's not alone. There are many people in the world that we live in that have intellectual inhibitions, inabilities, Maybe even in our own life, apart from God's work of grace within us, you know, oftentimes we long for more faith. But according to the scripture, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And so it's only the word of God that the Holy Spirit using the word of God in our hearts that enables us to believe, to have faith. There are hindrances, there are roadblocks to hearing the word and allowing it to take its full effect in our lives. So all of us, have inability, both the fundamental inability that we are depraved and apart from the saving work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, enabling us to believe that we will all be likewise damned. But there's also the inability in our spiritual life as we grow in grace to continue to lay aside the weights and sins that beset us and follow Christ with our whole heart. So what does Jesus do? Well, this brings me to the second point, the intrusion of Christ. Zacchaeus climbs the sycamore tree, desiring to see Christ as he passes that way. And verse 5 is really the one that this past week, as I meditated on this text and I thought about it and I prepared for the sermon, just gripped my heart so profoundly. Because even if Zacchaeus didn't want to be seen, the Savior spotted him. And so verse 5 says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, I don't know, the, the, the scriptures do not tell us why and how Christ knew who Zacchaeus was. Maybe there was some interpersonal interaction with him, maybe he had a reputation, maybe he was the chief scallywag in town, who knows? But Zacchaeus, Christ knew him by name. And so when he comes to the place where Zacchaeus is, he looks up, and in that gaze, it's no longer a man seeking a savior, but it's a savior seeking a man. And in that moment, the Savior calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. It's an imperative. It's a command. Don't stay in the tree. This place that you've resorted to because you want to know me, you want to seek who I am, don't stay there. Come down. Then he says something which is even more profound. He says, for I must stay at your house today. He didn't say I'd like to. He didn't ask him, Zacchaeus, May I come home with you? He didn't say, Zacchaeus, I know you have plenty of rooms because you're wealthy, so could, I, could you spare one? He looks at Zacchaeus and he says, I must come to your house today. This is the intrusion of Christ. The work of grace that was already beginning in Zacchaeus' heart, giving him the desire to seek Jesus, to know who he was, was only the beginning. Because you and I, on our own, do not have the ability to seek after him. We do not have the ability to find him. We, we do not have the ability to grow in our faith apart from the work of grace in our heart through the Holy Spirit. And so when Christ looks at Zacchaeus and says, hurry, come down, he gives an imperative and says, I must stay at your house today. He does not want to linger. He does not want to wait but it's an imperative that it must not be put off to tomorrow, but I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and he came down, the scripture says, and received him joyfully. The response of Zacchaeus, I mean, how else would you reply? This lowly carpenter who is purported to be the son of God, the savior of the world, has just blown your cover. And even though you're a small man and you could not see him because of the crowds, he sees you and he points you out and he cries out to you, I must stay at your house. Now, I also think it's very gentlemanly, if that's not too little of a word, of Christ. Because contrary to the Sunday school song, Christ was not going to Zacchaeus' house for tea. You know, you've heard the song, Zacchaeus come down for there for I'm going to your house for tea. He was not going to his house for tea. He was going to his house to do business on his heart. Here was a man who defrauded others, who cheated others, who had a, a reputation in town. People did not like him. He was a, a chief tax collector and no doubt had the reputation of being a sinner because the next text says that people responded by grumbling. The next verse, uh, verse 7. But it's an imperative that he must stay at Zacchaeus's house. Now, it's interesting to note the response of the people. And I picture... The same crowd, by the way, and we're going to talk about this when I get to the, the third point that I want to make, but uh, if you go back up into the 18th chapter of Luke, what we see is that Christ has this following, this group of people, not only his 12 disciples, but a group of people who are following him from one city to the next. They're watching all the miracles, all the signs, all the great things that he does, and they give glory to God. And they have different reactions, and so it's... it's Noteworthy that whenever they see what Jesus is doing, verse 7 says, They saw it and they all grumbled. And they said, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. How could he? Out of all the people in town, how could he? Christ wants to stay with Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus may have said, it's not recorded, but... It may have, he may have said, out of all the houses and all the towns in all the world, why would Christ want to come to mine? What we do know is that this, not invitation, but this intrusion was such that it changed Zacchaeus' heart. Because the very next thing that he said in verse 8, he stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he's making a declaration, which was a huge statement. He's not waiting for Christ to say, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. He's being proactive and saying, Lord, whatever I have, if I've defrauded, if, that probably was an overstatement, if I've defrauded any man, I will give him fourfold. And I will take my goods and I will disseminate them among the poor. Now, equally as profound, I would say even more so, is the reply of Christ. Not only did Christ intrude into his private space and say, today I must stay at your house, but he also said in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now notice that Christ did not tell the onlookers, salvation has come to this man's house because he's willing to part with his goods. Notice that Christ did not say to Zacchaeus, in Zacchaeus' presence, Oh, you've done well. 
You must have heard what I told the rich young ruler. You're willing to part with your goods. You're willing to give to the poor. You're willing to give back fourfold to those whom you've defrauded. Therefore, salvation's come to your house. No. He tells the people salvation has come to his house. Why? Because he also is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, the apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And later again in verse 29, he says, if you are Christ's, if we belong to Christ, if we're in him, then are you Abraham's offspring. And remember when Christ was entering into Jerusalem and all the people around were saying, tell your people to be quiet because they're saying Hosanna. He said, if they should be quiet, then immediately the stones would cry out because God is able even of stones to raise up children to Abraham. And so it's not simply those who are the descendants of Abraham that were Abraham's children, but according to scripture, it is those who have faith that, is, that, brings to, that leads to salvation. Now, that faith is not something that you and I are born with. It's not something we muster up. No, it's a gift of grace, God's grace, just as it was there with Zacchaeus. And it's also a gift that is covenantally given. He references the fact that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, and God made a covenant a unilateral covenant, if you will, with Abraham, so that he promised by virtue of his own reputation that he would be faithful, that he would give him a seed, and in that seed, speaking of Christ, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Christ is here the embodiment of that promise, and he declares to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. Why? Because Christ intruded, Christ invaded his life. On June the 6th of 1944, the day that many of us know as D-Day, the Western Allies invaded a friendly country. They invaded Normandy in northern France. Normandy, free France, by the way, was being led by Charles de Gaulle, and it was an ally of the Allied powers. But the Germans had infiltrated this ally to the extent that their influence was so powerful that it became really the turning point of the war, but one of the most significant battlegrounds of World War II. But the prerequisite of this invasion, the prerequisite of, of really this climactic moment, was the Allied powers making the decision not to simply observe from the sidelines, not to fight the battle in remote theaters from afar, but to invade friendly territory for the sake of rescuing an ally. And in a similar way, we see Christ doing the same. And this is where ultimately all of us, all of those who have been redeemed by Christ must fall to our knees and make the same proclamation. Glory to God, praise be to God, because ultimately it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. Zacchaeus would not have longed to climb a sycamore tree and see who Jesus was if the Holy Spirit had not preceded the coming of the Savior and already begun a work in his heart, giving him the desire to know this one this Galilean carpenter, this one who says, follow me. And so we see that because Christ's intrusion, Zacchaeus is a changed man. Now, I want to touch on the last and final point, which is the irrationality of grace. Why do I say that any of this is irrational? When we read the story of, Z of Zacchaeus, we see a, a rich man, and we see him simply climbing a tree to seek Christ, 
One thing seems to lead to another. We hear Christ say, come down for I must abide at your house today. And then we hear him turning to the crowd saying, salvation has come to his house because he too is a son of Abraham. What's irrational about any of that? Well, let's not take it as an isolated incident. But let's back up a little bit and see what's happening in the flow of the life of Christ at this point. Because if we go back into the 18th chapter of Luke, we see how that there was a man, a friend, perhaps an acquaintance, they were in a close geographic area, but there was a rich young ruler who came to Christ asking, what must I do to be saved? And Christ said, you know the commandments. He said, yes, thou shalt love the Lord your God, honor your father and mother, etc. He said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Then Christ tells him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, come and follow me. And chapter 18 tells us that the man walked away very sad, for he was very rich. And verse 24 of chapter 18 says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And then in verse 26, those who heard it said, who then can be saved? In other words, here was this outstanding citizen, this wealthy man who had this reputation of being such a fine, godly person who kept the laws of God from his youth up. And Christ is saying it's more easy, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And the disciples and all the people are looking around saying, well, if this man can't go to heaven, if he can't make it, who can? Have you ever thought that, by the way? I, I, I remember growing up, I knew such sainted people, people that I had the utmost regard for, men and women of God. And I thought, you know, if they don't go to heaven, I don't have a chance. But then I understood grace. Just as Zacchaeus understood grace. And so we continue on in the story and we see that all the people are aghast that this man with this great reputation was told that he would not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and they say, who then can be saved? Well, from there we, we see a, a sort of the polar opposite. We continue on throughout the 18th chapter of Luke and in verses 35 through 43, we see that he enters, before he enters Jericho, when he's still on his way there, there's this blind beggar that's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Christ stops and he asks him to come to him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And the text says that he healed him. He said, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And verse 43 says that the crowd, when they saw it, glorified God and gave praise to God. <clears throat> then we come to chapter 19, and we see Zacchaeus. Very quickly, all three men had inabilities. All three men had inhibitions. All three men were limited. They did not have a prayer if it had not been for the grace of God. In the first case, people look around and say, well, who then can be saved? In the second case, where a very poor man is given back his sight because of his faith, they glorify God. But then when Zacchaeus is invaded by Christ, people look around and grumble. And they say, how can he go be guest with a man 
who is a sinner? How can this Savior, how can this holy and just one whom we thought is a prophet, how can he go be a guest of a sinner? Oftentimes, we react in the same way because we do not understand grace. Grace is irrational. But I would suggest to you that ultimately, the explanation of the story of Zacchaeus is an answer to the question of the people there in Luke chapter 18, when they said, who then can be saved? Jesus was showing them, it's not your condition. It's not your circumstance. It's not the poor. It's not the rich. It's not the wealthy. It's not the blind. It's not the, those who are well. But the only way that any of us can be saved is by irrational grace. Grace that cannot be explained. Grace that has no merit. Grace that is simply undeserved. So ultimately, this is the message I suggest. This is why when Christ turns to the crowd, he says, Today salvation has come to the, his house since he also is a son of Abraham. Why would he say also? Because he's putting him in the same category as the blind beggar who begged by the side of the road, who received salvation even though his circumstances were different. He also is a son of Abraham because saving faith is there by the grace of God. And so ultimately the answer to the question of the people who then can be saved is really found in something that is very telling that happens between the rich young ruler and the blind beggar. Verses 31 through 34 of chapter 18 of Luke where Christ says, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and will die, but then will rise again the third day. So who then can be saved? Rich men, poor men, lame men, whole men, those for whom Christ has died. Those for whom God in his grace invades their life, bringing salvation to their house. Grace is irrational. Grace is inexplicable. Grace that has no substantiated merit in those to whom it is shown. This is irrational grace. This is the grace that you and I depend on, that we rely on daily. And so, the final application that I'd like to make, because we, we read all this and we understand why now I say it's irrational grace, we compare Zacchaeus with the rich young ruler and we compare the rich young ruler to the blind beggar and we say, okay, it's irrational. God accepts one and he doesn't the other. He accepts the person we thought he would and the person that we didn't think he would, he goes to their house. It's irrational. What does all this have to do with me? Two things. First, our relationship with Christ and our ability to know him is independent from any human attribute or contribution. Our ability to know Christ and to relate to him is independent from any human ability or contribution. That's ultimately what Christ is saying with these. And the people who would have followed him would have seen this. They would have witnessed what he told the rich young ruler. They would have seen and been the ones to glorify God when the beggar was healed. And they would have been the same ones who grumbled when he went to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And that leads me to the second point of application, which is that our response to the irrational grace of God is an indicator of how well we truly believe and understand the first point, which is that our relationship with Christ and our ability to know him is independent, completely detached and separate from any human attribute or contribution. 
You look at the crowds again from this vantage point and you say, well, the crowds in the case of the rich young ruler said, who then can be saved? If this man can't make it, there's no hope for me. Because the paradigm through which we expect one to be saved and one to be lost is how good they are. How well they measure up to the commandments of God. And then the crowd in the second instance where there's a beggar who has nothing but who has an ability because he can't see. He's begging for resources. He has to be, he cannot follow Christ because he can't see where Christ is going. And so Christ comes to him and asks him, what do you want of me? The crowd then glorifies God. Because in that scenario, Christ is having mercy on the merciless. But then you have this scoundrel, this wealthy man, who's wealthy because he exploits and takes advantage of others. But yet he wants to see Jesus, who he is. And the crowd looks at him and says, Nah, Christ is going to be guest with a sinner? I trust that you, I know I can, identify with one of those three crowds. But the reality is that if we can identify with any of them, then we don't understand irrational grace. Because grace is not something we merit. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we can ever work to achieve. But it is God's favor to man that is covenantally mediated through Christ, our Savior, the one who came and died for us, the one who was betrayed into the hands of sinners, was crucified on the third day, rose again. That's why it's just as certain, more certain, than really the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. Because the grace of God is what all of us, as Christians, fall back on. So I challenge you, as you think through this story, perhaps in a new light, that you remember that God's grace is independent from any human attribute or contribution. And that you tell yourself that daily. And that you ponder to realize that our ability, and it's something that we'll struggle with, I dare say, all of our life. But our ability to fully understand, to grasp and appreciate that truth, despite our inhibitions and inabilities, is a reflection of how well we truly understand that God's grace is irrational. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we bow in your presence, we look to Jesus, our Savior, the one who went to Jerusalem, who bore the scorn and the shame, who died on a cross, who rose again, who did it all for us. And we stand here not because we're better than any other person or because we have earned the right to be here, but we stand here because of your grace. And we cast ourselves upon it this morning. It is irrational. It is extraordinary. It is unbelievable that you, our Holy Savior, should die, should long to be guest, the guest of a man like me. But as we hear your words, O oh God, we pray that even now the grace of Christ our Savior might be shown, that our hearts might be resurrected anew, that we would cast ourselves on your mercy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.